want you to turn into Matthew's gospel to the 20, it says 25 up here, it should say Matthew 21. Um, we're going to be looking at Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem today. So we come to this moment in, in Holy Week, but also in the, the story that, that Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us. There's, there's a progression, there's a kind of, of culmination represented on Palm Sunday. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been doing incredible things. He's been working miracles and mighty deeds. He's been teaching and, and, and delivering these incredible messages with authority that, that no one before him has ever had. And there's this, this growing and building sense among the disciples, a growing recognition that Jesus isn't just a great teacher, He's not just a miracle worker, that that Jesus is the Messiah. But as Jesus comes very intentionally toward Jerusalem this morning, as he enters the city, Jesus is announcing that he is also a king. A king with power to save his people. I think the question the gospel puts to us today is not whether Jesus is king. But more, what kind of king is he? And whether he will be our king. Will we receive him as he comes? So with those two questions in mind, let me pray for us as we look into God's word together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the one who has been anointed king is the one who breathed all creation into existence in Genesis 1. The one who has been anointed our king is the one with power to save and to redeem and to heal us. Lord, we thank you that the one who has been anointed king is humble and gentle and is steadfast in his love for us. Jesus, as we read about your entry to Jerusalem today, may the words of my mouth as I teach through this passage, may the meditations of the hearts of your people, may all of these things be pleasing to you. May they be fitting for who you are as our king, our rock, our redeemer. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This is Matthew 21. We'll start at the the beginning of the chapter, work our way through. It says, On that day as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent ahead two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Literally, the word there means quaked, like an earthquake. And we'll see that happens two more times in Holy Week. All of Jerusalem was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame then came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did, and when they heard the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And Jesus left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is, is Jesus's coronation moment. And he knows that Jerusalem is not just any other stop on his itinerary. It's not just another city. Right? Jesus and in all of Israel with him knows Jerusalem is the city of King David. Jerusalem is the, the home of the tabernacle and the temple and the place of God's presence. And so knowing all of this and knowing that the, the nation has come, right? This is Passover week. The nation has come into Jerusalem with Jesus to worship. As he enters the city, Jesus makes some particular choices. Jesus has priorities about how he's going to enter Jerusalem as king. I think it's worth paying attention to these priorities because it helps us answer that question, what kind of king is he? The first priority Jesus has is, is the means of entry, the vehicle that will bear him into the city. Many years ago, I was a student in Jerusalem for a semester, and it, it coincided with John Paul, the Pope's visit to Jerusalem. And if you can remember seeing photos of that he had a Pope mobile, right? He had bulletproof glass and he could ride down the streets in this carefully enclosed vehicle to see the crowds, but also be, be protected from them. Well, Jesus doesn't choose a Pope mobile. Jesus chooses a donkey. 
And it's, it's an interesting choice because I'm sure Jesus could have selected a horse, a noble steed. He might have been able to, to secure a Roman chariot if he, if he wanted to put up some resistance. He could have asked his disciples to carry him on a sedan chair into the city. But Matthew tells us that Jesus goes out of his way to fulfill what Zechariah has already spoken about Israel's true king. That on the day of God's coming to be with his people, to reign and rule among his people, that he would come gentle and riding on a donkey. That he would come with peace rather than with a sword. And so as the, as the crowds acclaim Jesus' kingship and they, they call to him with loud hosannas, Jesus has made a point that whenever we read about this moment, we would know how it is he came into town, on what he came riding into Jerusalem. A humble donkey. The reformer Martin Luther believe that Jesus chose a donkey specifically because it was an animal with great power to bear burdens. And Jesus is telling us that he will be a king who will take the burdens of our humanity upon himself. Jesus comes as a gentle, burden-bearing king. That's his first priority on Coronation Day. Do we have burdens to give this king of our own? The second priority that we see Jesus express on that day is, is concerning where he wants that donkey to take him. Right? As he comes in over the Mount of Olives and he enters Jerusalem proper, right, there are a few different places a king could choose to go. Right? He could have gone to Herod's palace. He could have set up camp in front of those gates. Or he could have gone to where the, the Roman guard, the praetorium, was, was, was ensconced and encamped. And, and he could have made his claim for kingship there. But Jesus bypasses both of those things. And he rides quite intentionally up to the Temple Mount. And he enters that place of God's presence. And he tells us that his priorities as a king are centered on worship. On the kind of worship that his people will have with him. And the first thing Jesus does when he arrives in that place is to begin a work of cleansing and purging and clearing out. Right? Removing all of the clutter, removing all of the opportunists, Removing all of the religious profiteers who've set up camp in that place. People who, who were trading God's blessings like they were a commodity. Like they were something that could be bought and sold. Jesus spends all of his kingly authority and credibility in that moment. In order to fill up that worship place with a spirit of truth, spirit of access to who God truly is. 
And so on his coronation day, Jesus comes as a king who would cleanse us, who would, would drive out the things that interfere with our worship of the living God. Jesus wants to make a space for us to meet with him. The question is, would we let him rearrange the, the spiritual furniture of our lives, the idols that we have set up in his place, the ways that we would control God? Would we invite Jesus to take those things from us? So Jesus rides into the city in great humility. He sets about the work of great difficulty and cleansing and renewing. But then the third priority we see Jesus has on that day is to restore that temple to its proper place, to its proper purpose. With the money changers gone and all the the distractions removed from the temple courts, Matthew tells us that Jesus spends the remainder of that day, the rest of the morning, the rest of the afternoon, receiving God's people in the temple, restoring to those people what true worship is all about. Picture Jesus almost setting himself up as our great high priest on Palm Sunday. Told that Jesus says that this house is to be a house where we intercede, where I intercede with prayer for the nations that all might see and know what God is like. The temple was the place of God's true presence. And when Jesus steps into those courts, he brings that in his own person. He restores the true image of God to his temple. And look at what happens. Look at the account of what the temple becomes on that afternoon. It says that those who could not see receive back their sight. Those who could not walk receive strength to journey and follow Jesus forward. Even the children, it says, were invited into the temple courts. Their shouting is heard. They're, They're running around. They're making noise in God's house. So much so that it it raises the ire of the people who were used to controlling that space. King Jesus comes as a king that would restore true worship. Restore true access to God's life for his people. Do we welcome King Jesus to bring that presence to us. Matthew makes clear that this is is a choice that's set before God's people. It's not as though the kingship of Jesus is not disputed. As the last three verses we looked at here make clear, There there are those among us that would rather keep the keys to Jerusalem for ourselves. When Jesus comes to bring his reign and rule, we'd rather send him back to Bethany for the night than to let him settle in and become our true king. And so we see how Palm Sunday gives way to the next morning, starting in verse 18. It says, early that next morning, as Jesus came back from Bethany into the city, he was hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except the leaves. Then he said to the tree, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, and I think he's pointing to Mount Zion here, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is a story that many people struggle to understand or make sense of. What's Jesus doing here? We're told that that the night before, Jesus can't even sleep in the city where he is king because of his enemies, because of the animosity in that place. It's not safe for him to be there. And so here the next morning as he's walking back, right, he's going toward the temple to continue this, this restoration of true worship in Israel. It says that he's hungry. And he's looking for a bite of breakfast. And he spies this fig tree by the side of the road. Oh, somehow we got ahead of ourselves here. There we go. But he discovers that not only are are the religious leaders of Jerusalem sort of hostile to his message, but even the fig trees of Jerusalem are inhospitable to Jesus. Because here he sees this fig tree, and actually it looks like it's ahead of the game. It looks like it's, you know, springtime is not the season for, for big, full, ripe figs. Maybe some early growth. But this tree's got all its leaves out. It looks like it's... It's blooming already. And yet when Jesus goes up, a closer examination, there's not a single fig there. And I think Matthew records this moment. And Jesus acts in this way on that morning as a a kind of a visual parable of what it's like to be a people without the king and kingdom of Jesus. Right? This, this miracle is a sign of judgment. And what Jesus chooses to do when he sees this tree in leaf but without any fruit is he speeds up this tree's eventual fate. Right? All, all trees will eventually wither and die. But Jesus allows us to see the future of this tree in a moment. And as a tree which has no fruit on its branches... It means it's also a tree with no seeds to drop into the ground, which means it's also a tree that has no future. It cannot reproduce itself. Life apart from Jesus and his kingdom, no matter how much we dress it up, will be a fruitless existence. It has no staying You think about Jesus' words in John's gospel about abiding in him and how we we bear fruit and we bear fruit that lasts. But apart from him, we can do nothing. If we refuse to welcome the true king when he comes, 
Jesus is saying we will be a people with no fruit, no life in us, and no future. So we have to decide, do we want Jesus to be our king? Do we desire to extend to him that kind of authority? So we see a discussion that follows on the heels of that encounter with the fig tree. Now Jesus encounters the chief priests and the leaders again the next day. It says, Jesus then entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and they say, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say human origin, we are afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This moment of Jesus' culminating ministry, his coronation moment, comes down to these questions of authority. When I was a kid, sometimes out on the playground, there would be arguments that would break out when we were playing a game, right, about about who got to choose what we were going to play next or about what rules we were going to use to play by. And in those arguments, sometimes kids would say, oh yeah, who died and made you king, right? Do you guys remember? I don't know if people, do kids still say that on the playgrounds? Yeah, maybe, I don't, I'm too old to know. But I think that's a pretty good paraphrase of what the chief priests and elders say to Jesus in verse 23. Right, Jesus has has just come, he's reclaimed the temple precincts for himself. He's reinstated a life-giving, a joy-giving, a healing-giving ministry in that place. And that's put this old guard on the defensive. And the only, the only card they have left to play is the authority card. Right? Jesus, who died and made you king? But I think Jesus' response is worth taking a little bit of time to think about. I don't think it's just a trick to, to get out of the question. I think it actually points to something deeper. When Jesus is asked about his authority, he doesn't point to his own ministry. He says, look at John. Specifically, look at John's ministry of baptism. And he says, who, who was it that sent John to baptize? Who authorized that ministry? And of course, the, the spiritual leaders didn't know what to do with John either. Right? They, they tolerated John enough to keep the crowds happy. But they didn't follow John. They didn't receive John's baptism. They didn't go the way that John was pointing them to go. And I think that's why they're still stuck on this moment with Jesus. 
Because John's baptism, again, it's, it's more than just a trick question, right? John's baptism is deeply connected to the kingdom of Jesus. John's baptism was like the, the runway for this kingdom's coming. And if you remember John's message, we started here. This was the first message in this series, Matthew 3. Right? John came baptizing, and his message was repent for what? For the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of our God is at hand. It's near. It's here. Right? And, and Jesus, in great humility, even enters into those waters of repentance himself so that he can be joined to us, so that he can bring that work of repentance and renewal and cleansing to us. And on that, on that day that Jesus was baptized in the river, right, we see God proclaiming who Jesus is. It's his true son. He's going to restore true worship to this place. Well, now we've moved all the way from chapter 3 to 21 here, and now that king and that kingdom are at the gates of Jerusalem. They've come in their fullness. There isn't any more waiting. But Jesus is still reminding them that the key to this kingdom is repentance. Repentance is the only thing that can open our eyes to who the king is. Repentance is the only thing that can open our ears to, to hear that his words are good news. Repentance is the only thing that can make our hearts soft enough to receive him and, and yield the control of our lives to him as king. I think repentance in this instance is, is the act of agreeing with God about who the true king is. Repentance is about the king and the kingdom of Jesus. So I want to finish this morning by giving us a chance to enter into that, that act of repentance by praying kind of imaginatively through the passage we've just read. I want you, if it helps you, to close your eyes and to picture that you are, are following Jesus into the city that Palm Sunday. Would you like to welcome him as your king? Would you make space to welcome him as your king? And the first way we, we do that is by receiving Jesus as a gentle and humble king. Who comes on the back of a beast bearing burdens. Are we willing to receive Jesus gentle and lowly? Are we willing to bring the burdens that we are carrying and offer them to him? To trust that he's able to carry them? Can you imagine coming to Jesus the King and saying, Lord, save me? As we continue to follow Jesus in that mode of repentance, are we willing to welcome him and to follow him up into the temple of our hearts, into the deepest places of our convictions and our desires, 
Are we willing to welcome him there? And are we willing to give him permission to remove the clutter from that place? Are we willing to let him see the, the things, the, the false images, maybe things and practices and ways of being that we don't even want to be part of our lives but have made their home in our hearts, and now we don't know how to get, get out of them, get rid of them? Are we willing to welcome Jesus to be a king who cleanses us? And then finally, are we willing to welcome Jesus into the temple of our hearts? To make that his home, to fill that, to restore that place with his presence? Are we willing to repent of, of our desire to be king and master of those courts and instead yield them back to Jesus? Do you imagine that in your mind and with the Holy Spirit's help? What is it that Jesus wants to do? What new life does he want to bring into the place where you worship him as king? Maybe he wants to open your eyes. Maybe he wants to heal your body. Maybe he wants to restore your joy and laughter like that of children in that holy place to offer you a moment in whatever way you might desire to express your welcome to Jesus as King this morning. Jesus, help us to be ready as you come to us. Amen.